0: As I made mention of just a moment ago, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes and trying to journey through this book because it helps us make sense of a complex world. I love the honesty of the book of Ecclesiastes. If I would encourage you to like spend some time over the next few weeks like reading through that and it so well depicts our, our condition, not just several thousand years ago, but like what you felt this week is in this book, I believe. And because that, that's true and it's God's word given to us to, to encourage us, to challenge us, I believe that it's got something very timely to speak to you and to me here this morning. It's been incredibly helpful in my own life to be studying this particular book and in particular the text that we're gonna be in th- this morning. And so here's what I wanna invite you to do is to turn to Ecclesiastes. We're gonna be in the third chapter this morning. And so if you did not bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back tables and you can turn to page 617 at any point you can get up grab one of those. You also, though, can go to cpwp.life, swipe over, there's a card, the second card says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen, including the text this morning, will be there, there's space for you to actually take notes, you can email it to yourself afterwards, alright, but I encourage you to make use of that. And the theme, the big idea that we're going to see as we get into this passage, it's one of the most well-known, in fact, there's a poem that starts out uh, the opening verses, the first eight verses, it's probably one of the most well-known like kind of works of poetry that's ever been composed, that's ever been written, that we'll look at in a moment, songs have been made about it, like some of you are familiar with this, but it deals with this, this kind of topic of, of seasons or of time. And so let me just ask you this question, just kind of get your mind thinking about this for a moment. Like, how do you actually feel about the passing of time? Now, maybe some of you are in a stage of life and you're just like, oh, just, it's so slow. Like, I'm just I'm waiting for my driver's license. Or I'm waiting for th- this thing to happen, right? And so you might be in that spot. And I can still remember those days, but maybe some of you are feeling increasing, like, this thing's just clipping along at this pretty fast rate, um, and then there are things out there, like maybe you're engaged in this that oh, a couple of years ago you posted this particular picture of you were out enjoying some meal with friends or something of your child, and you happened to post it on social media, and then you know Facebook wants to remind you now like oh here 's your memory, and you can go ahead and share that and it can be a beautiful thing, or you can just get all kind of like melancholy and like sit in the corner and be like it 's almost over, right Like you have like one of those moments, maybe that 's just me all right uh, but there There's all these things that are flying at us. And I I mean, true confession, like if I ever have to go, like there's been times Heather's like, hey, can you get that picture to print or whatever? So I put up the computer. It's like an hour goes by. She's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm just down the rabbit hole, right? I'm like, look at this. And here's our old dog. And here, right? I mean, I'm just like, you know, she's like, we just needed the one picture. And I'm just like, the memories, it's just flooding in. So how do you feel about the passing of time? something that I wish I could actually control more of, right? Like sometimes we feel like we don't have enough time or time, it's sort of slipping away. One of the themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is that everything is vanity. It's this idea of like, it's like a vapor or a mist. We feel that, don't we? I got together for kind of a college reunion with some buddies. We probably hadn't seen each other in 15 some years, the four of us all getting together. Did that several weeks ago and realized, and part of what prompted that is we weren't able to attend our 20th, you know, reunion of, from college. And I was like, dang, I'm that old now, right? Like time is just moving along and we wish we could control it. I don't know if you saw this documentary that came out maybe a a little over a year ago, Um, Tom Brady, Tom versus Time, all right? Uh, If you know anything about Tom Brady, he's a very successful quarterback, Um, comes from this little school, maybe you've heard of it, University of Michigan, just a little side note there, okay? Uh, And in, in this particular documentary, one of the things that they're exploring is his desire to play. He's already in his you know, early 40s to play into his mid to late 40s, the game of football professionally, all right? And it's sort of all the things that he does to keep his body in shape and the strict dieting and all the things that go into on the physical side and the mental side and even they explored the spiritual side of it. It would differ from, I think, our understanding of what the scriptures say, but but there's this recognition that there's this drive for something of meaning, of value, of purpose that sounded a lot like Ecclesiastes. And as much as this documentary likes to showcase, right, like, hey, who's going to win Out in the end of the day? Here's how the story ends. Time wins, right? It doesn't matter how much kale Tom Brady eats, right? Time is still going to win. It doesn't matter how much you and I exercise, not to diminish that or any of that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, like, time moves along. And so it's not Tom versus time. I mean, it's your name versus time as well. And so what do the times actually teach us? What does the Lord teach? Trying to instruct us on. And so look with me at this poem, how the chapter three starts out. We get this sort of rhythms, I wanna say, of, of reality, these seasons of reality. These first eight verses invite us to consider time. It says this For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time for peace. So the preacher here, in these words, this exploration of what is life all about, there's this question that's been driving him, like what does man gain by all the toil? And this is why I tell you that the book of Ecclesiastes is so spot on into the human condition because not much has changed. We wonder, like, what's the point of it all? What will we have to showcase at the end of our days? As the clock keeps ticking down, like, what actually is lasting? What, is, what matters? How should we even view time? And so it tells us there, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now we live in Florida. I realize, and so the idea of seasons—like, do we have those? What well, we do, right? I mean, we've got love bug season, all right, and then everything else. It seemingly, right? But it's this idea of there's these periods of time, and what we have here, all right, it's not—it's not prescriptive, meaning go and do this, all right? Like, okay, go. Now is the day to go find someone to hate, or today's the day to go and kill. But rather, it's descriptive of just how life plays out. So. We could spend a lot of time unpacking kind of each of these as there's these opposites that are given. There's sort of the spectrum that's here. But let's look back for a moment at these. I'll call your attention to a few of them and ask, what, what is the Lord trying to communicate? Why are these words here in the scriptures? What do they have to say to you and to me? So there's a time to, and he says, well, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted When it says a time to kill and a time to heal, he's just been referring to sort of this agricultural kind of imagery and most commentators think what you have here is a reference to to still kind of life on the farm, meaning this, that there are times when the animal simply needs to be put down. There is a time to kill, but there's also times to to heal. And maybe you know the reality that even with a family pet, right? But even if the healing actually happens, it will eventually go back to death. That's the reality of the world in which we inhabit. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. He says a time to mourn and a time to dance. I think the older we get, the more you realize that as much as we might have intentions of getting together with extended family, what tends to bring families together? The time to mourn at the funeral and the time to dance at the wedding. And the writer wants us to feel the weight of this, as sad as it is, that there'll be some that at that last wedding that you dance with that eventually you will be at their funeral or they'll be at yours. I mean, it's just the time is passing. And maybe you're like, can we just get the kids back up here? That was cheery and that was fun, right? But God in his love gives us these words. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, which is simply, it's kind of an interesting reference to how things were done in their military at the times. Like Oftentimes you would actually, as part of a way against your enemies, you would throw stones into their fields so that they actually couldn't cultivate anything. And then there's times you'd go and gather the stones so you can begin to do some work. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow is gets into the idea of, of mourning and of grieving where oftentimes the cloak, like it would be torn, the, the it would be torn at the seam and you're mourning, you're wailing, you're grieving. But then there also comes a time where you sew that back up and it's like, okay, the, the grieving period is over. Not that you're never sad again, but there's this kind of marked time, which culturally back then I'll say, did a lot better job probably than we do. We sometimes want to bury it. And it's like, no, no, we need to grieve. But there's also a time to sew back up. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Even think of the wisdom that's needed to know this. One of the, well, I make a lot of mistakes because I, I say a lot of words, all right? Uh, but one of the ones I could remember in particular was like, I should have just kept silent, all right? Is walking into my grandparents' house after half of it had burned down and then standing in the partially burned down kitchen and being like, I love the smell of smoke. Um, not a good word to say, all right, when your grandparents are grieving over the house that just burned down, right? There should have been a time to keep silent. My dad reminded me of that in that moment, okay? <laughs> we have these things, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, if you were to go through and you were to take the time to look at, okay, how many times is the word time used and the kind of these, there's this structure, there's this rhythm to it. One of the things that you will see, or there's, the, there's, this listing here of kind of these 14 pairs. And to the Jewish people, seven was the number of perfection, of wholeness, of completeness. So it's double that number. And most scholars will look at this and say, it's this way of intentionally communicating. It's like perfection upon perfection or sort of wholeness, completeness. It's meant to give a comprehensive view of like, this is what life looks like. And sure, there are more details, but it's kind of painting this picture. One isn't necessarily tied to the other as the list builds, but it's just showcasing this is what you go through in life. Like you've experienced these things. You could think of your own anecdotes and stories about like how you've dealt with that or the things that are are coming. And so what we see here as we move now into the other verses of this particular passage is we got to see this, that it's showcasing for one, it's a comprehensive plan. It's God's comprehensive plan. But here's where it becomes painful and yet redemptively beautiful as well. It's God's comprehensive plan that confronts the idolatry that you and I have for control. I want to control time. I want to control situations. I don't want to be surprised by something. I want to be able to figure things out and navigate things and do it my own strength. And my guess is you do as well. We want to strategize. We want to think through it. And God, in his grace, is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. these things that I just laid out for you in this poetry of these first eight verses, I'm showcasing for you that I've got a comprehensive plan. This is how life goes, and your opportunity is to think through, will you actually trust God in his goodness? Will you trust his comprehensive plan, or will you continue to sort of kick against it and say, no, 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 I know better. And the scriptures love, it, like God loves us enough to give us the scriptures that will confront us and confront this idolatry that we have of control. The idea of idolatry simply meaning, like, we make this thing, like, it's, to have some level of control, that's not a bad thing. We don't wanna be out of control. But when we fight for that, it becomes this, like, unholy desire where we push God to the side and say, I know best. And so there's some challenges. There's this rhythms, these sort of seasons of reality. I wanna showcase, look with me at verses nine to 22 as the chapter concludes. These words are not now a new section. They are given in response to what we just read in the poetry and the, the rhythm of the first eight verses, that there's some particular challenges and we could probably highlight more than I'll spend time on this morning. But let me showcase for you a few things that come up that's like, wow, this is challenging. So look with me at verse nine. It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts are the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. There's that idea again, it's a vapor, it's a mist. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, there is a lot that is in there. Let me highlight for you just a a few things as we look at some of these particular verses verses 9 to 10 just gets right into it It says what gain has the worker from his toil i've seen the business that god has given to the children of man to be busy with and so there's that reoccurring question if you've been with us for the first couple weeks of this book or you spend some time reading it it comes up over and over again like what's the point what do we gain for all of this toil all of this labor all of this engagement that we give to things lots of times good things But what gain has the worker from his toil? So he's observing this. He's like, we live all this time, these various seasons, these rhythms of of time, all right? But what's the point at the end of the day? There's a challenge in there. Like, okay, how do we wrestle with that? And we drop down to verse 16. The writer says this, the preacher, the teacher says, moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, where things are supposed to be rightly ordered, God has a particular way that he wants things to be. He's like, what did I see in its place? Wickedness. We feel that, right? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of injustice. You're like, this isn't right, and yet you want to cry out, but your voice is sort of stifled, and you don't know if anyone's actually listening. Will anything ever resolve? And we just feel this. That's what he's saying. I saw that under the sun, that in place of justice, there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I can't get away from the wickedness, the brokenness. He's like looking out, and he's like, it's just all around us, and the Most frustrating thing is it's not just out there, it's also in here, like it's in your heart and it's in my heart. In verse 19, he says this, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. Now he's not saying in there that man and woman, all right, children that are exactly like the beast. No, like we're made in the image of God. We are image bearers, worth, value, and dignity, but at the end of the day, here's what he's looking out over the creation and saying, but they all end up in the ground eventually. And what happens to the beast happens to us. And like, what are we to do with that? What are we, how do we make sense of that? Maybe a way to think about it is this, like what is this focus on time trying to teach us? What is God, what is the Lord Jesus trying to teach us through these seasons, through time, the fact that we don't have any control and yet he is sovereign. That the scriptures, unapologetically, over and over again, communicate to us that, that God is sovereign. And that is actually meant to bring comfort. It does raise some questions at times when we experience the injustice or when there's things that aren't going the way that we think that they should. But the Bible is very, very clear that God is sovereign. I was reading this week in the Bible reading plan. I've been going through the book of Isaiah and came into chapter 45. Let me read these words to you. This is the God that we serve. And so what is the time? What is the Lord trying to teach us? For one, that he's the creator and we are his created, right? Like we've been created by him. We're part of the creation, Isaiah 45 7 to eight says this. This is God's declaration about himself. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Now think about that for a moment. I make well-being. I think we're all, yep, okay, yes and amen to that. We like that, but God also communicates very clearly, I create calamity, that our God is sovereign, that he's ruling and reigning. I am the Lord who does all these things. So he's kind of laying out these sort of opposite ends, and he's like, it's me all throughout it. He says, Shower, O heavens from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created. It's communicating to us that human flourishing only happens because of the sovereign good hand of the Lord. That the only growth you and I experience, that every good thing, we looked at this last week, comes down from the Father of lights. That's what the book of James tells us. Over and over and over again, even in the brokenness, anything, the, the joy that you have where you experience some human flourishing, where the creation is flourishing, when there actually is new life, when you look out, all right, as I've walked into my house over these past few weeks, there's these gardenia bushes. I literally have done nothing about them. I've not, I've not watered them intentionally, all right, I've not given any sort of fertilizer, and they're blooming, and they're, they're, the smell, it's just, it's amazing. That, it's this reminder, like, God causes all things to flourish. That's him, that's not me. And in this, though, because there's injustice, because there's wickedness, because there's calamity, the disposition of the human heart, though, is rather than focusing on the good things that he's given, is to go and say, God, you should know better. I want to critique you for all the things that you've done. In this season, I don't like this season. I want to go back to the season of dancing and not of mourning. But what if that isn't what the Lord has for you right now? What if that's not what the Lord has for me right now? Will we trust him or will we critique him? verse nine of Isaiah 45, then uses this imagery of the potter. It says, woe to him, not the Bible, right? If God is saying like, "Woe," we should pay attention, all right? You don't wanna be in that spot where it's like, woe to you, he's critiquing us. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. What what is this communicating? We're the clay, we're being shaped, we're being molded. The seasons of life, the things that just happen, all right, it's part of God's sovereign plan. That may be hard to deal with. That is not altogether easy. We have lots of questions, and the church is a space we should be able to wrestle with those things. But the Lord in his love is communicating to us, don't think it's outside of my control. Don't think for a moment that I'm surprised by what has happened. And he's communicating to us, it's not all right. Like the clay doesn't go to the, go to the potter, all right, and say like, hey, what are you making? Why are you doing this? Hey, may I suggest this? Or like, why did you make it without handles? I've got lots of moments throughout life, in essence, where I'm asking God, like your work has no handles. God, I needed this or I needed this to go a certain way. And my guess is that you fill in the blank. You have lots of those things as well. But the audacity for me to talk back to the God of the universe. The times are teaching us that God is sovereign and there's an the invitation to trust him. Now, in this, there's a, there's a tension though. It's like, okay, but what about the pain you don't know? I don't know everybody's story here, but I know this, that in a room like this, with just this amount of humanity in here, there is legitimate pain and huge amounts of suffering. Even if I don't know the particulars of your story, like it just, it just has to be true. So what are we to do with that? Is this meant to beat us down? I think we need this perspective of seeing that now the Lord is at work. He's bringing about his purposes. One of the time markers for me um, is every I don't know it's a few times a year I get this in the mail um, it's the Wheaton College magazine a Wheaton College where I went for undergrad and this thing shows up and so I have a main point for telling you this but the side note is this this shows up um, and the kids will be like where's dad and Heather will be like Oh, he's reading the Wheaton magazine. Don't bother him. He's going to be in a bit of a melancholy funk for a little while, right? Um, And I kind of have these moments. I begin to look through, and then I kind of go down this, you know, rabbit trail of, like, memories. And then, honestly, there's legitimately sad things. I mean, in the back, there's always, like, well, here's the people that got married, but here's the people that have passed away. I mean, it's Ecclesiastes. You're seeing this. And I sort of have these moments of thinking back to some 20 years ago. But in this particular issue, the 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 man that you see here on the front is a pastor by the name of Andrew Brunson, and you may have heard his story. He was doing, he's been a missionary, him and his wife. Um, a Wheaton, he's a Wheaton College grad, um, and he, uh, he was doing work for 20 some years um, in Turkey. And in the fall of 2016, I believe, It was, um, he was falsely accused, he was arrested and for uh, literally just over two years was in prison, separated from his family, separated from his church. For years he'd been working um, in this area that's very opposed to the gospel, very opposed to Christianity. Uh, One of the things I read is maybe after like some, I don't know if it was 15, 20 years in there. Maybe the church had about 25 people or so was one of the details that are So just, just laboring week in and week out for the cause of the gospel. By our estimations, we might look and be like, is that a lot, a lot of fruit? I mean, he's just faithfully serving the Lord. And then he gets arrested. He's falsely accused. And it's not until literally just over two years later that he's finally freed. But I love this quote as I was reading through this article and you see him there. It says, the Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in my being free. And he began to reflect. He said early on, he finds himself in prison. He he was a missionary. He'd studied and trained for this and he'd read all the great biographies of the missionaries. And he thought, weirdly, he said, at first I kind of had this zeal and excitement about like, oh, you hear these stories. And He's kind of like, I know it's terrible, but at the same time, like God's gonna work. And he's like, it wasn't anything like that. It's like, it was just hard. I just like, for like the first year, he's like, the Lord just broke me. So even then, sometimes we look at suffering, like, oh, this is gonna be this great thing. It's like, no, like, the Lord is continually breaking him. And yet, as he's reflected back on it now, and he was sharing some of this with the student body as he gathered to do a chapel service last year, he began to share the reality of the thousands upon thousands of people from even other areas where the church is persecuted that were communicating to his wife and trying to message were getting back to him but people were praying for him people were praying for his church people were praying for the country in which he was in praying for the government there and realizing that there was this work that the lord was doing raising because prayer changes things and in that he's like had this not happened that amount of prayer never would have been unleashed out into these these particular areas that he was so passionate about. And so the Lord was accomplishing more in my imprisonment than in my being free. This is the perspective of one who says, I'm the clay. Lord, you're the potter. You do with it. Now, I appreciate his honesty there, because I would have been in the same situation, would have been like, Lord, like this needs handles. I need to get out of here, let's, let's, let's do this. Can, Lord, you wanna have a strategy session together? We'll whiteboard this thing out, we'll figure this out. He's like, no, I've got this, I'm doing something. David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards*, says this, satisfaction then comes when you know you are a time-bound creature and God is the eternal creator. Satisfaction lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my creaturely existence and accept the seasons of my life as coming from his good and wise hands. Accepting these things is the gift of God for left to our own devices, we accept neither. I often refuse to accept that I am a creature by never expecting to walk through deep valleys but only experience the mountaintops. Am I in a season of sorrow and despair? I often refuse to accept that this has come to me from his fatherly care. It is easy to stop believing that God will bring every single one of my moments into his eternal present and put right what has gone wrong. That's the story that you're invited to be part of. So let me close with this, all right? Looking back, we're in the same section. I just tell you this, that there's these rhythms, these patterns, these seasons to reality and they're meant to showcase for us that there's an ultimate reality, a truer reality, that there's a bigger and better and truer story that you and I are invited to. The world constantly disciples us towards smaller stories where you're the center of the universe and I'm the center of the universe and you're the hero of your story and I'm the hero of my story and it's nonsense and it's garbage and it's from the pit of hell and it will not actually bring life until we repent of that, confess that and say, Lord, you've got the true reality. I wanna dial into that. I wanna be connected to that story. And that's the invitation that we actually get here. He says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. All right, not in my time, not in your time. In his time, he's making everything beautiful. Go read Romans chapter eight. That's one of the things that it's communicating to us. But also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's still gonna be this mystery to things, but notice that language, he has put eternity into man's heart. It means this, that you and I have a longing for something greater. You and I are created to be connected to ultimate reality, to the ultimate story, to this grand narrative that's not this sad, tired story of you and I doing what we want, thinking that we're in control, that we can control the time, that we can mastermind our own life. It's dying to that. It's living for Jesus and his kingdom to seek first His kingdom. And there's this longing, every single person that's here, every single person in the world, every single person that's ever walked this earth or will walk this earth, God has put eternity into their hearts. Why? So that we would feel this angst and this frustration that this world does not ultimately satisfy. And when we understand that, when that points us to the deeper and true reality, then we can embrace, look with me, what The preacher here says, all right, he begins then to say things like beginning in verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. All right, so be joyful, do good. He says to eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's not a passive like, ah, I guess this is all there is to it. It's no, I now understand that everything is loaded with significance and meaning because I'm part of the story that God has brought me into the story. It tells us this, beginning in verses 14 to 15, whatever God does actually endures. Like that's the God that we worship. Nothing, it says, can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, and I love this, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God has done it, so what? Step people would fear him meaning that they would be in awe of him that there'd be a right worship a right reverence that that longing that's in our heart might push us towards the God of the universe where we might actually know where life is to be found and then it tells us God seeks it's the language of a shepherd going out after his lost sheep that God knows that there's that longing that's been put in your heart he put it there And he is hounding you. He loves you. He pursues you. God is the active agent. Read the Bible. It's not a story of you and I figuring it out. It's about us being dead in our sins and God moving toward us and rescuing us and bringing about a plan of redemption. Verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. This brings him great comfort. Why? Because he knows that God is ultimately going to judge. He's going to set everything right. That the story That we find ourselves in, as sad and as frustrating, as small as it is, like the reality is there's a bigger, there's a truer, there's an ultimate reality that we're invited to. And the frustration we feel with the times or the seasons is meant to point us to that. So let me close with this. You sometimes ask, you're interacting with people, right? And there's a couple, I think, common responses these days. Sometimes you say, hey man, how's it going? And we get, it's going, all right? Or something happens. It's kind of difficult, and somebody will just kind of respond this way. I've said these words. Maybe you have as well. It uh, it is what it is. I'm not critiquing, like, and saying, well, you can never use that phrase again, and I will judge you if you use it, all right? But there's something, I think, deep down maybe that this gets at where it's just a bit of almost we can start to get cynical and jaded. uh, It just is what it is. It just happens. And a part of what Ecclesiastes is teaching us and making us aware of, like, there are things, like they're just gonna happen and it's gonna be a mystery we're not gonna know this side of heaven. We're not always gonna even have the perspective of the ways that God was at work. So on the one hand, it's true, it is what it is. But the book is telling us this, it's pointing us to something even more profound. As we think about ultimate reality, it is what it is, but it won't always be what it is. That God is writing a story that he invites us into. There is something truer and deeper and more meaningful and because of the work of Jesus, what we know is that, well, this is, this is reality. Like, no, 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 I've opened up a whole new reality. It won't always be what it is right now. We won't always feel this angst that what's in our hearts about, that eternity has been put there. Like one day we're actually going to know that there will be a time when Jesus comes back and he splits the sky and he enters into our world and it's the, the new heavens and the new earth and we will dwell with God. And so let me encourage you in this. The reason that's possible is because of God and in his timing entered in. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That Jesus came in. That Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. That he was punished in our place. That at just the right time in the fullness of time that God sent his son. You wanna know how you can trust this God even when things are confusing and chaotic and feels like there's all this calamity? That God gave his son. He clearly has to communicate. He's not indifferent to your pain and suffering. He has a purpose. If God can use the death of his own son, he can use the circumstances in our life to bring about his purposes. And as Colossians 4, 5 to 6 then tells us, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person what's the encouragement there if you're a christian who knows the reality of the good news of the gospel you are interacting every single person you interact with has eternity that's been put in their heart will you be patient with them will you steward the time well will you steward the conversations well will you engage in such a way where you point them to the hope that you have I'm gonna pray for us, I wanna give us a a time just here to respond, we're gonna continue in our worship service, we'll give you some instruction in a moment, but take some time, what do you need to repent of, What does the spirit brought up? I want you to remember the beauty and the wonder that God, in the fullness of time to come, he sent his son, at just the right time, Christ died for sinners, and that should create some resolve in us, Not, not this posture of earning anything, but this resolve of like, we get to be on this mission. We get to showcase for other people. We get to imperfectly, but point them to the hope that we have, how we make sense of the times that we're in because we trust that our God is good and that he loves us and that he pursues us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son on a rescue mission. Thank you that you are a God that is sovereign over time, that you're sovereign over the seasons. God, we confess that in our short-sightedness, the... just the frailty of our own being, our, our minds. Um, there are mysteries, there are things we can't quite make sense of. But we thank you that we can look to the cross and we can know, God, that, that whatever's happening, it can't be because you don't care. That you were willing to actually send your son and it kind of just reframes everything for us. And so be near us, God. I pray for any here this morning. They've walked in and there's just, there's, just incredible pain and suffering and hardship. Will you minister to them May the beauty of the cross? May it just be more glorious in their life. I pray that for all of us, God, that we would find our identity there, that we would stop trying to prove ourselves, but we would rest in this gospel and this good news. And so God, hear our prayers now as we spend some time in quiet reflection. God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.